You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Hi, and holy God, you bend down to speak to us. And so now as we come to the reading and the preaching of your word, we pray that you would tune our ears to hear you, you would open our hearts to receive your truth, and that you would ready our feet to walk in your ways. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. My name is Elizabeth Hayes. I'm the director of parish ministries here at 3rd, and I'm glad to be worshiping with you this morning. If you've been with us this spring, then you'll know that since January, we've been in a sermon series that we're calling The Way of Jesus. We've been following Jesus through his life, through the book of Mark. And as we've been following Jesus, we have been asking this same question over and over every week. Who is this man? And we've been asking, if he is who it seems that he is, what does that mean for us? What does it mean to walk in his way? And today we will look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the long-awaited Messiah King. So Odi Kish will read scripture for us. Hear God's word. A reading from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word. Thanks be to God. Well, ever since the pandemic started, my husband Will and I have been ordering our groceries online. I wonder if any of the rest of you guys have picked up this habit during the pandemic. It's, you know, it's honestly something that I never thought that I would do regularly, but once you start, it's kind of hard to stop. (laughs) So if you also order your groceries online, then you know that there's this trade-off, right? You save all the time that you would spend in the store, which is amazing. You get a lot of time back. But you never really know what you're going to get, right? Uh, One time, Will and I, we were about to start Whole30, which is this like 30-day diet. It's terrible. You can't eat anything fun. And we had planned out everything that we were going to eat, and we had put in our grocery order of just fruits and vegetables. And when we picked it up, we actually got all the things that we ordered, but we also got a jumbo bag of peanut butter (laughs) M&Ms, which we just took as a sign that we should give up before we start. (laughs) And uh, the other day, actually, Lauren Early, who's sitting up there, she sent this picture. She 
put in a grocery order, and in her grocery order, she ordered kids' yogurt smoothies, like just yogurt for kids. But instead, she received uh, smoothie-flavored Tums. This picture right here. (laughs) Not what she was expecting, right? (laughs) You know, today's passage is kind of the same experience. There had been these whispers and murmurings and hints that Jesus might be this long-awaited Messiah, the king that God had promised his people. But up until now, Jesus had been saying to anyone who guessed his true identity, he'd been saying, shh, keep it a secret, don't tell anyone. Eventually, he acknowledged to the disciples that he was who they thought he was, and they had been anxiously waiting and waiting, and the anticipation had been building for just the right time when Jesus would let the cat out of the bag, when all of the big action would start. And so they have been on this long journey through the Judean wilderness up the Mount of Olives, and once they get to the top of the mountain, they get their first glimpse of the city of Jerusalem, and they know it's time. The revolution is about to begin but they didn't quite get what they ordered, did they? Things didn't turn out like they expected. Mark is showing us in this passage that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited king, and that the time is now to usher in his kingdom. But this king and this kingdom would not be what Israel or Rome or anyone had expected. Jesus is going to radically redefine what kingship means. So today we're going to look at these two questions. We're going to ask, who is this king? What kind of king is Jesus? And what is this kingdom? What kind of kingdom is he ushering in? So let's dive in. First, who is this king? I want you to imagine that it's a hot summer day, middle of the summer, And you come across a a crowd of people, and they're all dressed in red, white, and blue. And they're waving American flags, and they're lining the sides of a road. Some of them might be eating hot dogs. And uh, all of a sudden, you see a parade start to come down the road. And uh, in the parade, there are fire trucks, and maybe the mayor is riding in a car, and... There are marching bands and men in uniforms, and they're all waving American flags. And then, all of a sudden, everyone starts to sing a song that they all somehow know the words to. What do you think would be happening here if you saw this scene? It's the 4th of July. It's the 4th of July parade, right? We know what those symbols mean. They mean something to us to our, us in particular in our time and place. And in just the same way, this crazy parade that Jesus puts on into Jerusalem, it is full of symbols that meant something to those people in that time. So let's talk about what are some of these symbols. Well, first, Jesus rode into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, and he's on a young donkey that had never been ridden before. And the prophet Zechariah predicted that this is exactly how the Messiah would enter Jerusalem. He would come from the Mount of Olives, 
and he would be, strangely enough, on a young donkey that had never been ridden before. So when the people see this, the buzz starts to build, right? There's a real anticipation in the air. And as Jesus enters the town riding on his donkey, the crowds start to lay out their cloaks on the road to create this red carpet for him to walk over, right? And, you know, this isn't something that they would have done for just anyone, certainly. It's not even something that they would have done for just any important person. This symbol is something that they've done in the past. We have a record in 2 Kings 9.13 of the ancestors of these Jews who are laying out their cloaks laying out their cloaks in the same way at the coronation of King Jehu. So this is a symbol of royalty, of welcoming royalty. This is a coronation symbol. And then we we see that they're waving branches. Mark doesn't specify what kind of branches, but the other gospels tell us that they were palm branches, which are a symbol of Jewish national pride and victory. And these people would know that just 200 years before, 200 years is not that long, so they would know that the same thing had been done for a man named Judas Maccabeus. I wonder if any of you have heard of Judas Maccabeus or the Maccabean Revolution or um, the books of Maccabees. All of those are about the same guy. And he had overthrown the great Syrian king Antiochus. He, after he had overthrown this king, he rode into Jerusalem, and the Jews waved their palm branches and ivy leaves, and then he went in and he cleansed the temple from the foreign occupiers. And many people thought that Judas Maccabeus might be the Messiah, but he turned out not to be. And so they're, they're waving their branches just in this same way, welcoming a victorious king. And just like at a 4th of July parade, they're dredging up these songs that they only sing on special occasions, but that they all know because their ancestors taught them these songs, right? So they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is the same song that their ancestors sang to welcome King David, victorious King David, in Psalm 118. And they say to Jesus, they say, Hosanna, which is something like, praise be to God, God save us now. So the first thing that this passage tells us, unequivocally, is that this king is the king. The Jews had been waiting for this promised king the Messiah, the anointed one, who would once and for all usher in the kingdom of God. This was the great hope of Israel, an end to exile, cleansing of the temple, restoration of the promised land. The great king had come. But there was something wrong with the scene, wasn't there? Because Jesus was not entering on a war horse like Judas Maccabeus might have done, or wearing armor dressed for battle. Instead, he was in a simple cloak riding on a young donkey. And he wasn't waving to the crowds. He wasn't pumping his fist or leading them in some kind of chant like, USA, USA. He wasn't doing any of that. Actually, Luke's gospel tells us that he was weeping as he rode through this crowd. 
This is not the victory parade that they ordered. You see, there's this incredible juxtaposition because the king who has shown through his life that he is the very source of power is riding into town on a steed fit for uh, no one because not even a child would ride an unbroken colt. For weeks now, Jesus, uh, we've watched as Jesus has tried to tell the disciples that he is even more powerful than they could even imagine. But his power is a completely different kind of power than what they would expect. And this image is like the ultimate object lesson for them. Jesus combines these character traits that we would normally think of as mutually exclusive. He's infinite majesty and complete humility. He's perfect justice and he's boundless grace. He's absolute sovereignty and utter submission. He's strong and yet vulnerable. And this picture of the king of glory entering his kingdom on a donkey in the middle of all of this pomp and hype, crying. It's such a moving picture of who this king really is, isn't it? And you know, Jesus is like a master chess player. He has led these crowds exactly to where he wants them to be. For the first time, he actually accepts this recognition of him as the Messiah. For so long, anyone who guessed that he was the Messiah, he had been saying, shh, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. But here, he accepts it. This is his way of of saying that their assumptions that he is the Messiah were right. It's his way of saying, the whispers were true. I am the king. But right when all of the eyes are on him, he makes sure that they know He says, look at me. I'm not going to be what you expected. So Jesus comes as an unexpected king. He's meek and he's mighty, he's sovereign and he's servant. But what exactly is he king of? What is this kingdom that he's announcing? You know, the answer to this question has been debated for a really long time. And to be honest, we've come up with some bad answers. And so I want to talk about some of the ways that we might answer that question, what is this kingdom? On the one hand, we might think of the kingdom in the way the disciples and the crowds did, that it's all about the here and now. So the crowds were shouting, welcome the coming kingdom of our father David. They thought that they were about to welcome a king who was going to usher in a political kingdom, who was going to lead a political revolt. And they thought that they were going to have victory over the Romans who had occupied their land for so long and that they were going to return to the glory days that they had once known under King David. That's the kind of kingdom that they wanted to be a part of. That's what they thought that they had ordered. They believed that a change in government would bring peace and prosperity, And you know what? It actually would have. They were really suffering oppression under the Romans. And we'll see, you know, 40 years later, the Romans utterly destroy Jerusalem 
with a terrible siege, right? There would have been some peace that, that could have come from a change in government. But that peace would have been temporary. We've seen it in the past in the Jewish history, right? They had the, the glorious years under King David, but then they had exile. Kings fail and they falter, right? That kind of peace is not a lasting peace. And instead of leading this political revolt, Jesus rides on his little donkey to the center of Jerusalem and he enters the temple and he looks around and then nothing happens. (laughs) There's no battle, there's no revolution, there's no new kingdom. Womp, womp, womp. It's like, what a letdown. And you know, today we can fall into the same kind of thinking about the kingdom. We might believe that Jesus was mostly here to teach us a better, more peaceful way of living and that if we just follow his model, all of us follow his model together, all of us act more like Jesus, then all of the social ills would be repaired. But if this is the entirety of the message of Christianity, if it's no more than an exciting model for social progress or a moral blueprint for peace and prosperity, then what in the world do we do with cancer? With this evil, cruel, destructive disease that all the good morality can't fix? Or what do we do when our heroes, the ones we've held up as the champions of this new way, turn out to be utter failures? What in the world do we do with the crucifixion? In this model, just like the crowds, we want the kingdom that we order. We want, we want the kingdom that, that solves our, our immediate problems. But The kingdom is not just one big plan for how to make the world a better place. If that is what you ordered, friends, you've got another thing coming. Because it's so much more than that. So that's one way to answer the question, what is the kingdom? We can say it's all about the here and now. But another answer is to say that the kingdom is completely spiritual, to say that it's all about the there and the then. So the kingdom, in, in that view, the kingdom is something that we'll enjoy in the future, in a far away place called heaven. And the purpose of the death of Jesus is to save our soul, rescue us from creation, and whisk us away in due time to heaven. So in this view, the fact that Jesus didn't lead a political revolt means that Jesus doesn't deal with the lowly realms of politics and societies. What really happened in the Gospels, the story of Jesus, is that he died on the cross so that we can get out of this world and go to heaven, where things will finally be made right. In the meantime, though, what do we do about unspeakable evil in the here and now? What do we do about the evil that we're witnessing in Ukraine about mothers and children who are stuck in their basements with no food for over a month. In this model, 
all we do is we just go back home to Bethany and wait it out. There's no hope for the evil that we confront here and now. N.T. Wright uh, has written this fantastic book called Surprised by Hope. I really enjoy N.T. Wright, and I, I really enjoyed this book in particular, if you're looking for something to read. Um, and in, in Surprised by Hope, he makes this really provocative claim. He says, One of the greatest problems of the Western church, ever since the Reformation at least, is that it hasn't really known what the Gospels were there for. Have you ever thought about that? What are the Gospels there for? What's the purpose of the Gospels? He goes on to say that the fact that we don't really know what the Gospels, what to do with the Gospels, is evidence of the fact that we don't really know what the kingdom is. So if we believe that the entirety of Christianity is about following the model that Jesus left for us through his life here on earth, then the Gospels are this exciting social work with a confusing and disappointing ending. Or if we believe that the entirety of Christianity is about getting people out of here to heaven, then the Gospels become this amazing story about an atoning death with a really long introduction. You know, neither of these options knows how to unify the life and the death of Jesus, how to put them together. But what Jesus is hinting at when he heals the sick, when he calms the storm, when he feeds the hungry, when he raises the dead, is what he finally announces on his ride into Jerusalem, weeping on a baby donkey. The kingdom has come. The kingdom of God, the reign of eternal peace, of perfect justice, of ultimate healing, the destruction of evil, that kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, has come to earth. In Revelation, John sort of pulls back the curtain for us to get a glimpse of what's happening in the heavenly realm. And what does he see? Well, Revelation 15 says that he sees angels singing. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. This world has become the kingdom of God. They're one and the same. You see, the goal is for God's kingdom to come here on earth, not for us to be taken away from earth to his kingdom. And this is what Jesus taught when he taught us to pray that the kingdom that the t- kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray that, we are praying that the forces that are temporarily occupying this land would be pushed out of every arena by the conquering king, Jesus. So what is the point of the Gospels then? I would argue that the point of the Gospels and of Jesus's funny parade on Palm Sunday is to say that this work has begun. It's to say that what is being ushered in here is exactly that. Jesus has taken his rightful place as a king of this world. His reign has begun. But here's the thing, friends. Jesus never imagined that the kingdom 
that he was launching through his healings and his feastings and his teachings would be fulfilled without his death. Jesus' death, which we'll remember this week, was the only way to fully accomplish his work, the work that he began through his healings and his feastings and his teachings. The death and the resurrection of Jesus are the only way for the kingdom of heaven to come to earth, the only way for the power of evil to be vanquished, the only way to usher in eternal peace. See, the king was weeping because he knew what the crowd didn't know. He knew that what they had ordered, what they were asking for, would come at an unimaginable price. He knew the extent to which these very crowds, the ones that were shouting Hosanna, were slaves to the power of evil. And he knew that the only way to free them, to free us, to rescue us so that we might become rescuers ourselves, was to put an end to the hold of evil over them, to die for them. So, On Palm Sunday, you know, Jesus, when he's entering Jerusalem, he's not heading just for Jerusalem in general. He's heading specifically for the temple. That's because he knew that atonement and redemption and salvation are an essential part of his work to usher in the kingdom. In order for his followers to be part of this new world order, they must first be rescued from the power of evil, but he was alone in the temple. The crowds didn't follow him there. We don't know if they just like drifted off at some point or they got bored or it didn't look like what they were thinking or what. We don't know exactly how that happened, but, but he's there alone in the temple. The temple is the place where the king of glory would be found. He is right where the son of God should be, but nobody's paying attention. They've missed it again. Here's the thing, the Christian message, the realities of Palm Sunday, of Good Friday, of Easter, they proclaim a new world order. Even as we are confronted by the data that suggests that nothing has changed, I'm reminded of the reasons that I believe in the power of Jesus Christ, even now in this present evil age. Jesus calmed the storm Creation acknowledges his sovereignty. He raised the dead. He reversed the powers of death and decay. Something has happened here, friends. Jesus, this humble and crying king, he has brought something to this world that was not here before. The kingdom of God, the reign of peace, it is breaking in here and now. You know, we, we actually don't know much about kings and queens anymore. There aren't very many true monarchies left in our world. So it's a pretty foreign concept. But a king has a bearing on the lives of his subject. Actually, a king is sovereign over everything and everyone within his reign, his rule. And there are no limits to his rule like there might be with Uh, democratic rule, or like most of the monarchies that we see now, 
So here's the thing. If Jesus is, in fact, king, then that has a bearing on our life. It had a bearing on the lives of that crowd who were, who were crying, Hosanna. Fleming Rutledge calls Palm Sunday the Trojan horse of the Christian year, which I really like, because it's a little bit of a trick, isn't it? This, the crowds and the story and us, even in this service, we come in joyful and shouting and singing and praising, but we go out stricken and somber. That's a Trojan horse. If Jesus is the king, even if he's a weeping and a humble king, then the crowds must crown him and they must submit to his rule. But if he's claiming to be the king and he's not, then he's a very dangerous imposter and they have to kill him. They either have to crown him or they have to kill him. That's the choice. There's no middle way. Friends, you and I, we have this very same choice before us today. It's not a choice that we just make once in our life. It's a choice that we make every day. Will we submit to the sovereign rule of King Jesus? You see, to submit to the sovereignty of the king means to put everything you own all of your loyalties, all of your honor at his feet. Are you ready to put your property at his disposal? Are you ready to obey him even when his commands puzzle you? What about when his help seems delayed or when he's not exactly what you thought you ordered? Are you ready to get behind him when he shows up on a donkey instead of a war horse? What about when all of the crowds disperse and the chanting stops? Jesus wants to do for you what he did for the whole of creation. He wants to bring his healing, his transforming power into your life. He wants to calm your fears and anxieties. He wants to redeem your wounds and your trauma and your scars. He wants to forgive your sins and wipe away your shame. He wants to restore relationships and heal societies. He wants to establish the very kingdom of heaven here on earth, right here and right now. And he wants to commission you to be part of it. But if we domesticate him, friends, if we treat him like a sweet grandfather who doles out kind advice and gives comforting hugs, then we rebel against his sovereign kingship. If we put him off believing that we just need to wait things out here on earth until it's time to get to heaven, we rebel against his sovereign kingship. Jesus will not settle for being just a positive influence in your life or a nod on Sunday mornings. He won't be tamed. Either he'll come into your life as king or not at all. So we started this service with celebration and jubilee, but when the pomp and the circumstance fades, when Jesus takes us with him on the downward way, the way of the kingdom, the way of this new world order, 
Will you crown him or will you kill him? Let's pray. Jesus, our King, we come to you trembling, asking that you would be king of our life, asking that you would teach us what it means to submit to your sovereign kingship. And we pray, God, that you would invite us into your work of reclaiming this territory from the powers of evil. You would invite us into your work of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. We pray, God, that you would shape our hearts to be the kind of um, servant, submitting servant that you were. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.